Thank you very much indeed. Just to say that I've written a book called If God is So Good, Why I Think So Bad. Um, sadly, unfortunately, it's not on the bookstall, uh, but our bookstall manager said he will be able to order this for you. Uh, this is, um, looks at the problem of suffering from Job to Jesus. And what this is, because I'm a Bible teacher, I love expounding scripture. This is an exposition of the book of Job, not the easiest book in the world to read, but one of the most valuable if we're going to have a deeper understanding of God and suffering rather than superficial views. But also in this book, what I show is that throughout, Job is a type, a sort of um, prefiguring of Jesus, who is the greatest sufferer of all. He is our suffering brother. And so in this book, I make those connections. It's full of uh, illustrations and um, examples uh, and also a lot of pastoral application. Now, I'm not going to deal with that today. It's the same title, but I'm going to take a different approach. And uh, what I'm wanting to do is to look at this subject in a broader, um, on a broader canvas, in a, in a, in a bigger framework. Um, sometimes I think we, in, in a panic, when a non-Christian asks us, well, if there's a God, why, you know, why the tsunamis? Then we, we try to answer that immediately. I think it's better to take a step back and try and place these questions in a broader context and also to compare what Christians believe with other alternatives out there. Uh, Someone said that uh, contrast is the mother of clarity, and that's true. And I hope to show you uh, this morning that if you think Christians have got problems, uh, wait till you see what other people are coming out with, okay? Um, so um, that's what I'm wanting to do. Simple um, sentence, if you want, to take away with you uh, is, is this, is that we must try and understand suffering in the light of God and not try to understand God in the light of suffering. If we, if we focus on the suffering, we can soon end up with a very distorted view of God, who is not God at all. But if we look at the revelation of God as he's given us in the Bible, supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what God is really like, then let's try to understand the mystery of suffering. There's always going to be a mystery. We can't answer all the questions, but we can answer some of the things, okay? But in the light of God, and that's what I want to show, okay? So let's begin. He was desperately thirsty. The sight of a fat icicle hanging outside his hut in Auschwitz concentration camp caused prisoner 174517 to reach out his hand in the hope of quenching his thirst. But just before he could place it in his mouth, one of the guards snatched it from his hand, ground it into the ground with the heel of his jackboot. Varum, why? The prisoner cried in astonished disbelief. Heiner ist kein Varum, replied the guard. Here, there is no why. Now, the prisoner in question was the Italian philosopher, writer, Primo Levi, who later wrote, If there is an Auschwitz, then there can be no God. So here's the question. 
Does experiencing such monumental evil and suffering necessarily result in atheism? There's no God. Well, someone else who was in Auschwitz was Viktor Frankl, who came to an altogether different conclusion. He said the truth is that amongst those who actually went through the experience of Auschwitz, the number of those whose religious life was deepened in spite, not to say because of the experience, by far exceeds those who gave up their beliefs. And Frankel made the observation that as a weak flame could easily be blown out by a small breeze, so a weak faith might be extinguished quickly when it encounters suffering and evil. But by the same token, real faith, like a strong flame, can be fanned into an inextinguishable flame by a storm. Now, when we come to what is called the problem of evil and the suffering it causes, I don't think we can think about it in the abstract. It doesn't help. You see, how we try to understand it will depend upon the beliefs we already hold, whether there's a God, what that God is like, what we think is the nature of reality. For example... Is there such a thing as suffering? Now, as we see, there are some people who don't think there is. What is the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? And so on. And therefore, depending upon what we believe and how we believe, as Frankel points out, when we are confronted with suffering, either that belief will be snuffed out, and it may be the belief wasn't worth having in the first place, Or, if it's anchored in Christ, it will be fanned into a brighter flame. Now, people talk about the problem of pain. What do they mean? Well, first of all, it has to be said that for the thoroughgoing materialist, that is, someone who doesn't believe in God, who doesn't believe there's a supernatural dimension, there is no problem in that Suffering does not count against his or her beliefs. Because for them, suffering, like a throbbing headache or the nightmare of the gulags, are simply part and parcel of existence. They're they're just there. So pain is simply an aspect of reality, like the redness of a sunset or the wetness of water. So to complain as an atheist, why suffering? You might as well say, why dry rot? Just is. Live with it. But it may be a problem, of course, for the atheist in that he, like the rest of us, has to endure suffering, cope with it in some way. But it doesn't bring into question their core beliefs. However, Having said that, sometimes suffering does cause the atheist to want to shake his fist at somebody, even if it's the God he doesn't believe in. So might it not be a possibility that when faced with suffering which is considered evil, 
It brings to surface that deep-seated instinct we all have that there is a God after all. Let me explain what I mean. Now, supposing you're wanting to lay a square patio of crazy paving in your garden. So you go ahead and you order a load of broken flagstones. And once they've been delivered and dumped there outside, then begins the tricky business of piecing them all together. Now, you will not be surprised in the least to discover that when you've finished, you are left with a few pieces that can't be placed anywhere. Now, you're not taken aback because you never thought that random, broken pieces were designed to fill up your square. And so it would not cross your mind to pick up the phone and contact the supplier and complain he didn't send the right flagstones for your particular garden. Now imagine you buy a jigsaw puzzle from a shop and you fit it all together very carefully and thoughtfully. But at the end, you're left with some pieces missing. Or maybe you've got some pieces which seem to belong to another jigsaw. Now you do have a right to be offended and complain. And why? Well, because underlying your complaint is the belief, rightly so, that there is intention, purpose, and design behind the jigsaw puzzle. And that is what makes a jigsaw puzzle different from crazy paving. Now, a similar situation exists when we come to the question of suffering. Because suffering we feel, and evil, doesn't quite fit in with the schemes of things. We, we, we feel it shouldn't be like this. Now, there would be no cause to complain if underneath it all we didn't believe that the world was consciously designed by a good God. So paradoxical though it may seem, the fact that we feel we have a right to complain about suffering and evil is evidence that we really do believe there's a God we are to complain to. That our world is more like a well-designed jigsaw puzzle with some of the pieces missing, with some of the pieces out of joint, rather than a pile of crazy paving that was randomly appeared from out of nowhere. Do you see the difference? Now, here's the thing. Suffering is a problem for the Christian because it appears to count against what he or she believes, namely, that God is good and God is almighty. It's been put in the form of a dilemma. You may have heard of this. Uh, one person who did it was the late Professor John Hick. He said this, Look, if God is perfectly loving and good, he must wish to abolish evil. If God is all-powerful, he must be able to abolish evil. But evil exists. Therefore, God can't be both perfectly good and almighty. Seems to make sense, doesn't it? So what do you say? Well, there are some simple solutions to that dilemma. 
And essentially, they involve removing one of those elements of belief which make up the problem, so it ceases to be a problem. Now, one option would be to deny the existence of suffering, viewing it as illusory in some way. Now, this is the position of Theravada Buddhism, which considers suffering, dukkha, as part of maya, uh, belonging to the veil of illusion. It only has a reality like a dream has a, a reality to the person asleep. Similarly, the sect Christian Science, which is neither Christian nor scientific, considers pain to be what they call the product of the mortal mind. It's all in here. No external basis. And, uh, and that reminds me of a little limerick. There was once a faith healer from Deal who said that although pain is not real, when I sit on a pin and it punctures my skin, I dislike what I imagine I feel. (laughs) But most normal human beings don't see it that way. They know they're suffering. The second alternative is to deny that God is all-powerful which is the uh, position of, I mean, there's lots of people who think this. There's this guy called David, David Griffin. And he says, look, the solution's easy. Deny the doctrine of omnipotence fundamental to it. In other words, God is not almighty. I remember when I was, uh, I, I was just ordained and I was a curate, having to go to one of these interminable conferences, and um, we were looking at, it was Isaiah, Isaiah 40 of all, um, uh, all passages, uh, which is all about the greatness of God, you know, it's above the circle of the world and so on. It's, the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And uh, one uh, female curate said to me, I don't like this. Um, I like to think of God as a weak God, a God who is struggling like the rest of us. That gives me comfort. Well, it's not the God of the Bible, and in fact, that God, that kind of God, deserves our pity, not our worship. So here you see, God has got this experiment of creation, which has simply got out of hand. Thirdly, there's the denial of God's goodness. And this has been expressed to, to considerable effect by a playwright called Archibald, Archibald MacLeish uh, in his play J.B. And this is an updated presentation of the book of Job, J.B. And at various intervals throughout the play, there's this haunting refrain. If he is God, he is not good. If he is good, he is not God. And in the play, a clergyman tells J.B. that his suffering is caused simply by the fact that he's a man, he's human. That's part of the human condition. To which J.B. responds, Yours is the cruelest comfort of all, making the creator of the universe the miscreator of mankind, a party to the crimes he punishes. In other words, God is like Dr. Frankenstein. He's created a monster he he can't control. He had good intentions, 
but it's gone out of hand. And then he goes on to blame the monster for all the mayhem that he's causing. Now, the Bible's position is very clear. The traditional Christian claim is that God is good, God is almighty, that evil and sufferings are realities to be reckoned with. So the problem turns on how you relate those two articles of faith, the goodness and omnipotence of God, the greatness of God, to the fact of suffering without compromising those beliefs or trivializing suffering as if it doesn't really matter or you lack faith, it's your fault. That's what I want to try and do. Now, here's a question. Turn to the question, what makes suffering morally unacceptable? Before you ask that question, you've got a prior question. Is all suffering evil? Or does it only become evil in certain situations? Now, just think about it. While psychologically most pain might be considered to be disagreeable, it's not necessarily the case that it is morally so. For example, biological pain serves as part of the body's defense mechanism, preventing further injury, say through a reflex action. There's a hot stove or a hot pan. You touch it, what do you do? You immediately, without any thinking, draw back. That's a good pain. Sometimes, in some situations, it is morally neutral, like the healthy pain after a long exercise. Martin knows this quite well, you know. Um, no pain, no gain. That's, that's, that's okay. Or it is morally good, as in the case of corrective punishment. Now, what makes suffering morally objectionable is when it occurs in a form which is wholly negative, it seems to be devoid of any conceivable purpose. It's wholly destructive, it seems. And it is this which lies at the root of so many tormented human cries. Why should my 10-day-old baby die? I've had to conduct those funerals. Why should such a gifted man be reduced to a mere shell through Alzheimer's? Now, it is this seeming lack of purpose which provides the twist which calls for pain to be viewed as evil, pointless suffering. Now, when we ask the question, why suffering? We could be straining in one or two different directions. First, we could be looking back to some cause. You know, what is the cause of suffering? Both in terms of the ultimate cause, where did all this evil come from in the first place? Or the more immediate sense, what is the cause of this particular suffering? 
This was what Job had to face with his, uh, his friends. His friends said, look, you're suffering greatly, Job. The reason you must be suffering is that you've done something bad. You, you are cursed by God. And Job says, no, I'm not. I've not been particularly bad. This can't be so. There must be some other explanation. Now, the Christian faith has something to say about all of those things in terms of human beings rupturing their relationship with God, which throws all other relationships out of joint. And so suffering literally is a painful reminder that all is not well between ourselves and our maker. And again, that's a good thing to be reminded of that. That's the message of Genesis 3, Romans 1. The writer John Piper suggests that we might think of it like this. He asks, what would happen if the sun lost its place in our solar system? The answer, there would be chaos. You'd have Mars spinning off into endless darkness. Saturn's rings beginning to crumble. Mercury flying right into the sun. And there would be bits of the solar system strewn everywhere. It is because the planets are rightly related to the sun that it actually works. You have a solar system. Now, the Bible tells us, especially Romans 1, that morally and spiritually speaking, that is what has happened to humankind. God is like the sun in the solar system of our lives. And if he is removed from the center of our thinking, then our thinking and our behavior get out of control, and soon the whole of society begins to disintegrate. Looking backwards. But I want to focus on a second possibility, which I think is the emphasis on the New Testament, namely looking forward and asking, what might be the purpose of suffering? What good, if any, can there be in suffering? Now, of course, I've already mentioned one. It can act as a severe wake-up call that we do need to get right with our maker. But the idea of focusing on some kind of purpose is important. Now, this way of looking at the problem was in fact taken up by a certain school of psychoanalysis called logotherapy, don't worry about that. But it was headed by Viktor Frankl, who I've already mentioned experienced the horrors of Auschwitz. And you know, it's there of all places that he noticed the positive way in which some people approached their situation. And this observation led him to quote a, a German philosopher, Nietzsche, with approval, when he said this, men and women can endure any amount of suffering so long as they know the why to their existence. In other words, if, if, if our suffering can be placed within some wider context of meaning and belief, then much, but by no means all, of the sting is taken out. So how might Christians face suffering and why? Well, a number of years ago, I was a fellow trustee of a charity with a very remarkable woman called Baroness Caroline Cox. And 
She was the former Deputy Speaker of the House of Lords in England. She had actually been described as the Mother Teresa of the war-torn poor. For, as a former nurse, she personally supervises Christian relief in many of the war-ravaged areas of the world. She actually goes out on the front line and helps out with the distribution of food and clothes and medicine. And you know, often when she arrives, people greet her with these words, Thank God you've come. We thought the world had forgotten us. Once she was asked to relate both her worst and best moment during all her journeys of mercy. The worst? Well, she thought for a moment and then she described what it was like to enter a Dinka village after the Sudanese government-backed soldiers had left. The stench of death, she said, was simply overpowering. More than a hundred corpses lay where they'd been butchered. Men, women, children had been cut down. People had been herded off into captivity as slaves. Straw huts were set ablaze. Devastation and death affronted eyes everywhere. And worst of all was the knowledge that the militia would soon return. Genocide is an overworked word. Baroness Cox said, and one I would never use without meaning it, but I mean it. What of her best moment? This, she said, came straight after the worst. With the raiders gone and the results of their cruelty all around, husbands slain, children kidnapped into slavery, homes ruined, women brutally raped, the few women who were still alive were pulling themselves together. And the first instinctive act was to make tiny crosses out of sticks lying on the ground and then to push them into the earth. Now, what were they doing? Simply fashioning instant memorials to those that they just lost? Not at all. Baroness Cox explained the crudely formed crosses were not markers of death, but symbols of hope. The cross sticks pressed into the ground at the moment when their bodies reeled, their hearts bled, were acts of faith. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they believed they served a God whom they believed knew pain as they knew pain. Blinded by pain and grief themselves, horribly aware that the world would neither know nor care about their play, their plight. They staked their lives on the conviction that there was one who knew and who cared. And they were not alone. Now, friends, here we see the difference between Christianity and all other beliefs. In contrast to secular humanism, which views suffering in the words of Professor Richard Dawkins as just damn bad luck, necessary for the evolutionary process to, to, to go about its business, or Theravada Buddhism, that is, it is the result of desire, 
which binds us to the wheel of samsara and the process of reincarnation maybe 7,000 times until eventually we are released to become nothing. Nirvana. Christianity recognizes that the world could have been otherwise but for human sin. And God has taken steps to do something about it. Now, the first important point to make is that Christians unswervingly hold to the belief that God is all good. His response to suffering and the sin which it occasions is not detachment, as in Eastern religions, but engagement. He comes into the mess in order to deal with it. In fact, more than that, it is enfleshment, which is what the word incarnation means, how God became a man without ceasing to be God in the person of Jesus Christ. The Christian writer John Stott reflects on this truth in this way. He says, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune from it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have turned away, and in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. Oh, there's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. God is good. We see it in Jesus. The second point to make is that Christians, again because of Christ, hold unswervingly to the belief that God is all-powerful. But... His power is not always shown in the way we might expect or want. He's all wise, but his wisdom is not always manifest in the way we might want it to be. Again, the paradox is that divine power is shown through human weakness. Good being brought out of the most appalling evil. And again, we're back to the cross. 
Because it's at the cross that we are presented again with this apparent contradiction, this paradox, running throughout the mysterious relationship between evil of suffering and the good purposes of God. Because from one point of view, you know, the cross was the worst thing that could ever have happened. The murder of the divine son pinpointing so forcefully our rebellious attitude towards God. It was a dreadful evil. Our maker comes into the world, we murder him. That's an evil. Yet, at the same time, it was the best thing that ever happened, the divine means of rescuing us. So here we see God taking sin and suffering seriously because he tasted it firsthand in his son, suffering physically and spiritually of a magnitude beyond our comprehension for our good. And it was this which shaped the New Testament writer's attitude towards suffering. You see it in, in 1 Peter. Jesus is our example, the supreme sufferer. The belief that the outworking of what God had achieved by Jesus' death and resurrection in time would be brought to completion at the end of time, ushering in a new heaven and a new earth where sin and death and tears will be no more. And from that perspective, we will be able to look back and say, God has done all things well, even though at the time we may not have understood it. The third point is that because of Jesus and the cross, together with his resurrection, which marks his triumph over death, sin and evil and the devil, Christians can content themselves that God is all-wise. That they know, because of Jesus, why they trust God who knows why, even when they don't. That there is some purpose in pain. We can know why we trust God who knows why. It's not blind faith. Now, Professor Don Carson gives a, a very moving illustration of this approach and the difference it makes in knowing the gospel. That God is all-powerful, God is all-good, and God is all-wise, and in the words of the Apostle Paul, works all things to the good for those who love him, conforming us to the image of Christ. He concerns a young man who was a six-foot skinny something who worked in Latin America uh, for about 15 years as a church planter and trainer of others. And while he was over there in Latin America, he met his future wife, and uh, she was the daughter of a missionary family, and they had a little daughter together. The missionary agency wanted this man to get some good, uh, well, to get a PhD, a doctorate, so that he could be a better teacher. And so he embarked upon a course at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, TEDS, where Professor Carson used to lecture. Six months into the course, his wife was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. She underwent the usual treatment, mastectomy, chemotherapy, fighting for a life. But she came through it all and for a while it looked as if she were cured. He started up his studies again. 
Six months later, he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. Now, all the local hospitals in Chicago, uh, which were good ones, by the way, said there was nothing they could do for him. So the missionary board eventually sent him to the Mayo Clinic, and they suggested a course of treatment which involved taking out 90% of his stomach and then supplying him with drugs which were normally used for colon cancer. Six months later, skinnier than ever, eating 10 times a day, he resumed his studies. He did another six months, and his wife's cancer came back. She died. Eventually, he came back to Trinity and finished his PhD. Now, the last time Dr. Carson saw him and his daughter, who by then was nine and a half years old, they were getting ready to go back to Latin America. And, and he came and he spoke at the church Don attends. And as he spoke that Sunday morning for about half an hour, all he talked about was the goodness of God. Now, how could he do that? Because he understood the gospel. It was the philosopher Socrates who famously remarked, the unexamined life is not worth living. This was then taken up and given an extra twist by the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, a life not put to the test is not worth living. And I think that applies to all of us, and especially those of us who are Christians. The only way people will really see the difference our faith makes, what we're really trusting in, is when the world turns against us, when troubles come our way, when calamity overtakes us, and only then can we prove to the world, and indeed maybe to ourselves, that we have something better than they have. Now, surely the ideal life, which is the Christian life, means nothing unless it is the tested life. Again, the imagery of, of, of scriptures there again in Peter, that our faith is, is, is like gold, it is precious. And as gold is put through the fire to test it and to refine, so is our faith. Otherwise, is it faith at all? This is how the Lord's half-brother James puts it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You've been very good at listening. Thank you. So we'll take um, questions now. Uh, how long have we got uh, with my host or Martin or somebody? How, how long? Uh, is, that, is that 10 minutes? Okay, 10 minutes, right. Okay, who, uh, who uh, wants to ask a question? Obviously, I've not covered everything. I cannot cover everything. I don't know everything. 
And that's important. We don't know everything. That's the point. But we do, we do know some things. And those some things we know are precious. Sir. Yes. Okay, um, so let me try and get, uh, understand if I've got this right. Um, you know, should we, well, do we pray that we avoid suffering? Um, and should we, how do we balance that with what we've been looking at this morning? Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Well, in some ways we do pray that, uh, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. And that word covers testings, trials. Um, so we're asking, and I think that means you unpack it a bit further, uh, uh, do not bring us to that point where we will fail, that we will be left alone in the trials. And, of course, God promises to be with us. I will, I will be with you always. So it's right. We don't go looking for suffering unless you're a maniac, you know. Um, it's something you must be deranged. You know, one must be deranged if, if one's wanting suffering. That's, we, we're, not, we're not Stoics, and, and we're not, um, yeah, we don't go down that road. But... It's a question of how we approach it when it does come our way. And, and of course, I think the difficult ones is not... So, I mean, I, I don't like pain. I hate going to the dentist. I'm glad I live in the 21st century. I'm glad there's anesthetics because I'm, I'm really nesh, you know, chicken. Um, so I don't like pain. I don't think we... You know, and we thank God for all the things that he gives in alleviating pain, and that's right. I guess for, for most of us, it, it's not necessarily the suffering our subjective suffering that we feel, it's when we see those who are close to us suffering. In some ways, that's more difficult, and we feel a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Um, that, that's much more difficult. But, uh, but into that, even that, we, we, we do what we can uh, to, to alleviate suffering, which includes praying, praying for healing, yes, um, praying for strength and perseverance through it, supremely praying that God will be glorified in it. And I think that's part of our growing in the faith and maturity. Initially, when we're young, it's, please, Lord, let me out of this, little children. Um, but sometimes we'll get to the point where the Lord will say, well, I'm with you in this, and I'll, I'll be with you. Uh, someone over here, I saw a hand, no? Oh, sir, yeah, oh, that was, uh, I, okay, thank you. Okay, yeah. That's a brilliant question. Um, if, asking personally, what was the most painful moment in, in my life? Um, what was God's purpose in it? And with hindsight, what did I learn from it? That is wonderful because one of the important things I've not had time to look at this morning is the place of hindsight. That's, that often, when you're in the midst of the storm, as, as, as Job was, you're disorientated. You can't see. You, you can't think straight almost can't pray straight, but we do. Um, but often when you come through it, you can look back and say, ah, now I see what God was doing there. Maybe teaching us a lesson, maybe causing me to depend more upon him. 
or, or whatever it may be. So hindsight, but there, are, but there will be a certain situations where in this life we will not know that. We, we will not have the hindsight even. We simply have to know to trust God who knows why. More recently, uh, for me uh, um, um, personally, um, about five years ago, um, I was in the midst of a media frenzy, big, big storm. Um, I'd um, publicly questioned um, someone at a, a clergyman at York Minster who decided to bless a gay pride march. Um, I went public on that saying it was wrong. Um, and I um, said, you've got to look at this issue in terms of moral categories. And I, I simply asked, well, would the um, clergyman be happy to, to bless a pride, a, a, a march of adulterers? Uh, or, um, and this is the thing that really got me into trouble, pedophiles. The moment you mentioned that, so then that was it. You know, I was on the BBC, I was on front page of national newspapers. And the amount of hate mail was phenomenal. Um, the phone never stopped ringing, so I didn't answer the phone. Um, we had to have people in our church, techies, to put things up. Um, there was a um, petition, petition to remove me. I had to go and see the archbishop, who didn't take my side. I was, I was standing up for the team, for goodness sake. <laughs> it was the other guy who was doing the wrong thing. Um, but anyway, there we are. And it was, it was, it was intense. It was, I mean, the, psychologically, you know, and it was just quite weird things that happened, you know, walking down into town. I thought everyone's looking at me because the picture's been in the paper. There must be thinking, oh, he's the man. Of course, that was stupid. It wasn't happening. But psychologically, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on my family and so on. So that was, it was a real storm. But let me tell you this. I'd say that was the time when the Bible became more, more, more real, if I can put it like It was like changing from black and white TV to color. It became precious and immediate, speaking to my heart. Prayer became deeper, and fellowship with fellow Christians in our church became more precious. And through it, God, I, I as happens in a sense with Job, not comparing myself to Job, but it was a means whereby God drew me close to him um, in, a, in a way I'd never known before. Um, and I'd what I learned from that is that God is faithful. We must stand for the truth no matter what, and he will vindicate in his own time, which is done. So that's my, just, there could be other ex examples, but that's my, does that help? Yeah, thank you. Um, lady over here, and then, yes. Oh, well, that's the book I was going to recommend. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I've not read it. I mean, when I was over in, um, what was it? Um, yeah, Grant Retief uh, up in, in, in Durban, um, he said there's a book called If I Were God and um, by Dixon, um, Dixon, is it? The Australian guy, help me out here. Is it John Dixon? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so um, th- th- there's that book. I've not read it, but he commended that as a, as a sort of thing for non-Christians. You want to um, look at things in a more leisurely way. It wouldn't be for non-Christians. Uh, Os Guinness's book called um, Unthinkable, which, is a, which was written after the 911 um, uh, Twin Towers thing. Uh, but, but Dixon's, I'm told, is good, apart from mine, yeah. Uh, yes, sir? Um, right, well, you see this again in the book of, of, of Job, um, and the, the whole book is, is stylized and so on. Um, and um, there you, you, you get the situation where the Satan, which is, is not a personal name like Melvin, it's, 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 it's more or less a title, meaning the challenger, and uh, Satan comes before God, this is the way it's presented in the heavenly places, um, out of sight from Job. So Job doesn't know any of this is going on. And the Satan challenges God uh, and uh, about basically the phony way he set up the world. And he's saying to God, look, the only reason why Job and people like him are religious is because of the good they get out of it. You know, be good, everything's going to be fine, but uh, take a, you know, give him a bit of suffering, then you'll see where, where he's really putting his, his, his faith. And uh, God is confident that that is not the case. He has not set up a phony system, and it doesn't work like that anyway. Um, so he says, okay, you can do so much, but no further. So in other words, the answer is both. Um, God allows suffering to happen. He, de- he decrees it, as, if you like. Um, but there are secondary agents, as it were, or means, um, whereby that happens, some cases, uh, Satan is behind things. I think the stirring up of the storm, anti-Christian stuff, that's satanic. No doubt about it. Even though those people who are still doing that stuff are also responsible. So we can't just say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. No, these people chose to do it, even though they were stirred up, if you like, by Satan. Um, there's earthquakes and natural disasters uh, and, and things like that, which are all part of living in a broken, fallen world. Again, it's the, kind, it's the world we live in is not the ideal world. It's not the perfect world. Uh, it's a world gone badly wrong, and we, we recognize that. But the thing is with Job, and this is very important, right at the end when he encounters God, God corrects him by pointing to the fact that it is a great world. Uh, he said, in effect, look, Job, I understand in your pain, you're, you're seeing everything through tainted lenses, through the, the lenses of your suffering, that you've got a distorted view of the world, everything is falling apart, and you've got a distorted view of me. Look again. Look at the wonderful world I've created. Look at how the beauty, the fact that it works so well by and large, we don't do too badly. This is a sign of a good God and a caring God. So this is why I go back to what I said at the beginning. We must understand suffering in, our, in, in the light of our revelation of God, not God in the light of suffering. So the answer simply is both in, in some cases. Madam? Yes. Is there always a reason for suffering? Um, I think the answer is yes. Uh, again, because we have 
a God is not a capricious God who, who does things without any reason or allows things without any reason. But, and so there's, I think there is always purpose in pain, if I can put it like that. But we don't, al- we don't always know what that is. Uh, we, 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 it's sensible to try and discern that. Um, and, it, and, it, and it also depends, as I said, upon the beliefs we hold and the attitude with which we come to a thing. Um, I'll be honest with you, the people I have met in, in, in my life who are the most well-rounded, caring, deep people um, are those who have suffered the most. The most shallow, self-centered, narcissistic people I've met are those who seem to have it all, but actually they don't have it all. That, that, that's the case. And who suffered the most but Jesus? And he is the most, obviously, the perfect human being, the sweetest human being, the compassionate human being. And that's what I, I, I found. Sir? Sorry, I didn't quite get that. Is suffering wasted? Oh, oh, that's better. All right, I understand. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm going deaf in my old age. Um, um, Yeah, is suffering a non-Christian wasted? Not necessarily, Um, because it, it may be that that suffering um, can actually be a means of them re-examining their lives, um, seeing perhaps, well, it may, for example, just in one sense, a basic one, um, if someone is suffering because of a bad lifestyle, then they should learn from that and perhaps improve their diet or get exercise. That's a very mundane level in some ways. Um, in other cases, it may cause some folk, and I've known this, people come to Christian faith through suffering um, because they've no answer. And they turn to the God, and they find this God is a compassionate God and that there is a God who has suffered. Um, so there, there could be. Um, but, as, but in some cases, uh, if, if there's not a learning from it, then in one sense, yes, it is wasted. And that's the responsibility. Yeah. I think I've got one minute, one more. <laughs> right. So it's a question of um, what do we do with the suffering linked to injustice? Um, well, again, I think as... Um, being, you know, what would be good neighbors, if we are in a position to, to challenge injustice and to deal with it through democratic means or whatever means are at our disposal, uh, I think we have an obligation to do that, yeah. Um, uh, because, yeah, so injustice is, is an evil and, and wrong thing, and uh, Christians are concerned with righteousness, justice, yeah. Are you looking my way black? You're going to come and wrap this up? <laughs> wrap it all up. Wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>